Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. Today on the panel, we have Charles Wood. Hey, everybody. And Dave Cooper. Hey, yeah. And our guest for the day is Becca Bailey. Becca. Hello. Are you a React developer who builds large applications for your organization? With NX, you can build your apps in a monorepo alongside your backend code and share code between React and other frameworks. You'll also get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier to simplify your workload. You'll build higher quality apps, share more across teams, and focus less time on configuration. Visit nx.dev slash React to get Narwhal's free open source set of extensible dev tools. So tell us, what have you been up to in the React universe lately? Yeah. So, I mean, mostly I have been using it on a regular basis as I have been working at a company called Formidable, which is a JavaScript consulting company. So React is kind of my like bread and butter, what I work with every day. But in the community, I also have been giving talks most recently at React Conf. I gave a talk about the state of state management in 2019. And I will be giving a talk at an upcoming conference that has yet to be announced called KonMari Your Code, How to Find Joy in Refactoring Your React Components. So oh, that's I've, exciting. Mm-hmm. I just got her, um, her um, manga <laughs> she's got the uh the the joy of tidying up as yes. a manga i'm i'm absolutely in love yeah i have not bought that one yet but i like every time i see it in a bookstore i'm just like ooh, i have to look yeah. through this because there's a lot about code that does not spark joy no <laughs> well especially refactoring components i was gonna say i missed the reference the book reference but yeah <laughs> joy <laughs> in refactoring components not a thing yeah no. Could, could you give us a like a, a, a brief summary of your React Comp talk, the state of state management in 2019 for those of us who missed it? Yeah, sure. So basically my talk was inspired by like just experiences that I had had as a developer, just wondering like, eh, should I still be using Redux this year? Like there's so many alternatives. We now have the context API. We have design patterns that are supposed to help us to extract some of our state away from our components. You know, Redux is a lot of overhead, but it also provides a lot of value for, for, for projects that really need something a little bit more like heavyweight and structured. So the talk was basically me going through what are the tools that we have at our disposal right now? You know, with hooks being released last year, or I guess earlier in 2019, and now we have access to context, which is another way of like doing dependency injection across multiple components and sharing some state and props that way. You know, first of all, what are some of the problems that we've encountered using Redux, what are some of the alternatives, but then also what are some of the reasons why you still might want to use it and why it is still a valuable tool. See, I vote that we all just use global variables. They're always available and then we <laughs> get out. Yeah, no. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a bad idea. Th- that's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in my talk, I talk a lot about testing as well, which is also a topic of my refactoring talk and about how we can optimize for for testing, whether we're using Redux or hooks or other tools and global variables are not great for testing. 
case you no. haven't figured that out yet. No, you never know what's hitting the global variables. <laughs> it, no. it is very interesting, though, the, the, like the process that you outlined. I mean, the talk itself, I think, is, is extremely relevant. But mm-hmm. how would you recommend, like, as a team, as a process, as a, as a company, how have you seen it be successful for teams to, to kind of consider these things, like, as a team instead of just individuals coming in and saying, let's change all the things or whatever? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think you have to... I've seen this go very badly. I had an experience this year where it just, (laughs) we had that discussion and it did not go well. You know, the Redux versus no Redux, the use my own library versus use the commonly used one. And I think the reason why that didn't work is because on our particular team, we just didn't have a lot of trust. We didn't have a lot of assurance that like each of us weren't coming at it and trying to optimize this for for our own interests or for you know what would make us us more comfortable. I think first of all we need to be aware of some of those deeper issues, um be aware of how power imbalances are happening on the team if one person feels like they have more authority than someone else who's coming in with a new idea. That's definitely yes. something to be aware of. Because I find that more often that sort of stuff is the roots of technical disagreements. It's it's often one more assertive person who tends to have more sway, even I, if somebody else is coming in with maybe a different perspective or some different experience. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Almost all problems in programming are people problems. Yes. Yep. And, and, and naming things. And <laughs> that, those are people problems. Indirect people problems. Yeah, those are people true. problems. <laughs> the, those people are not communicating well if they're not naming well. And yes, it's hard, but it's still a people problem. And you know, a lot of the technical issues usually come out of people not being prepared or educated or communicated well with or things like that, as opposed to picking the wrong technology, which is also a people problem or using it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, all those can be solved by getting the people involved in the right way. Yeah. So have uh, you seen situations like that like develop in the first place? And like, how can we av- avoid letting the, the culture turn toxic and, and you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a harder problem because there are a lot of, there are a lot of factors there. One of which is, you know, valuing tech, like, quote unquote, technical skill over people skill. If there are people who have been on the team for a long time who are just kind of able to say what they want or do what they want and not really care about other people's feelings. Yeah. That's a common thing that I've seen coming into teams. Also, you know, having had the experience on many teams as a consultant or as a new team member, like because I have, because I haven't been there for a long time, my opinion isn't valuable. Sometimes there is this idea of like the new people who may have had different experiences don't really have a lot to contribute because they just haven't paid their dues yet. Yeah. So really being active and making sure that everybody on the team, whether they're new on the team, whether they are, whether they've been there for, for 10 years, just to make sure that everybody's opinion is being heard. And also just, in my experience, at least, things like gender imbalance can can make that more challenging. You know, if I'm coming on to a if I'm coming on to a team that is like eight men and me, that can also create some 
real or perceived inequality that makes it harder to communicate. Yeah. I've seen that in my experience too, is just like any, even the most subtle differences between people, you know, background, you know, what we look like, you know, how we speak, accents, you know, gender, um, Mm -hmm. preferences, like any, any differences among people tends to kind of heighten the communication challenges and, it can kind of like the uh, power of um, compound interest, like it yeah. builds up over time and, and a, a tiny difference can make a, a huge difference in reality over time. And so subtle, it's hard to even perceive. It's tricky. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes these things persist for years and years and years. And then I come in as a consultant or someone from the outside and I'm like, whoa, there's a problem here. <laughs> yeah. But people who have kind of been immersed in it, it's like the frog in the in the boiling water. Yes. People who have been immersed in it for all these years don't really see the the bigger culture problem that actually exists. So they'll bring me in and be like, oh, we have a technical problem. We, you know, we've made all these bad technical decisions and now we just need a new library and we'll be good. <laughs> if only. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. And then I come in and I'm like, um, well, I... I don't think that's what you need. That's super akin to the big rewrite, right? And just the (laughs) library. I'm just going to replace this part of the code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. TypeScript will save us. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love TypeScript, but still. Me too. Assuming that everybody's good actors and everybody, you know, understands everybody else, you know, so in in the ideal situation, how do you start having this conversation then about state management? I mean, first, something that I really highlighted in my talk was that you need to come at it by being aware of what the problems actually are. Because I've had so many of these conversations where somebody comes in and they're just like, hey, we need to add Redux. And then the next question is, well, well, why? What are the specific problems that we're running into? What are the advantages that Redux might have that another that another solution might not have. I think we too often are jumping to conclusions about what the solution should be before we're fully aware of what our specific problems actually are. You know, it m- might not actually be a problem where we need Redux. Maybe we just need some more test coverage so that we want so that we make sure that props are getting passed in the right way or components are functioning the way that we expect them to. So I think really starting with the problems will often lead us to better solutions than we do than than we might if we were just throwing solutions into the mix that are that are cool that we want to try out. I love the cool factor decisions though. They've <laughs> never come back to bite me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even right now on the project that I'm working on, like I definitely have the tendency to like fall in love with one particular design pattern and then just kind of use it for everything because I think it's so cool. Like it used to be render props and now it's (laughs) same, (laughs) you know, like I used to love render props and now I'm like, no, no, no render props right now. It is context. So I tend to use providers everywhere and like, I was just looking at my code base the other day with my teammate. I was like, that's a lot of providers. I, I think that we might regret that someday, you know? So I also just 
have the tendency to fall in love with something and then do it too much. And then, you know, it was, it was cool and now it's not cool anymore. Do you have um, strategies around, sorry, just, just going back a little bit around picking, you know, making a tech decision for state management uh, or whatever. Do you have strategies around what happens when you pick something for a project, you know, it might be a, a medium or large project and you decide that the thing that you've picked is just really not the appropriate tool. And, you know, you, you or your team decide that, no, we actually need to go back on that. Do you have strategies around like that sort of thing? Like just for instance, like just as a, to, to maybe help a little bit there. Um, I'm working on a project at the moment that it's using Redux Observable in it very poorly. Like it's, it's just really there to add boilerplate and, and make testing things hard. Um, and we sort of made the decision to <laughs> that out. And that's just been an absolute nightmare because we we haven't really had too much of a clue of what we want to be able to re- like put in its place. And I don't know if I have any real specific strategies around around that because I think in my experience, like the hardest thing in that kind of situation is getting buy-in from, you know, your product manager, your stakeholders, people who may not quite understand what the technical limitations you're running up against. You know, sometimes, especially if you're on a team where like, where the people who are making decisions don't have as much actual actual code knowledge, you know, sometimes there's this attitude of like, well, why didn't you just build it right, right in the first place? So I love that. <laughs> yeah, just just make the right choices in the first place. Yeah, don't write any bugs either. Yeah, exactly. You know, just <laughs> make the right choices. Do your research up front. You know, or I mean, in my experience, sometimes I will make a choice, like assuming that the code base is going to be a, stay a certain size, and then it gets bigger, and we're like, oh wait, we need something different. This didn't work. So I mean, I think the the thing that we need most in that moment is just like runway to to have the time to do that rewrite if we need to and to have buy-in and to have the support that we need from the other people involved to be like, yep, that doesn't work. We understand that this is actually slowing down our development because it's introducing these technical problems. You know, here's a month to rip it out and replace it. You know, other than that, and like general good design, if you can, so that you are not, so that your components are like, not so that that's not completely baked into your components, whatever your state management system of choices. You know, I don't know if I have any specific like magic ways to make that not painful because it, it is painful every time. Yeah. There's always going to be some pain points, aren't there? Mm -hmm. So never, never gets easier. Never gets less uh, less less annoying. Yeah. So one of the things that you said is like the team made a choice, assuming that the code base will stay a certain size. So like, what can we do? Just kind of thinking out loud here, what can we do to kind of challenge our assumptions, or even discover what our basic assumptions even are, and make sure that those are like part of the mix when making these decisions? Yeah. I think as we're talking about technical decisions there's a balance to be found. You know, I think if you're reading about good software design, this is something that gets talked about a lot. This balance between preparing for the future and like trying to anticipate it. Because when you try to anticipate every single thing that could possibly change, 
you often end up with like these over-engineered components that, you know, are infinitely extendable, even if you only need to use it once. Or that's how you might end up with a situation where you have a ton of state management boilerplate for like a really simple CRUD application or somewhere where that just really isn't needed. So I think the challenge is to, you know, work with what you have right now rather than trying to over-engineer things for a future that may never come. That's a good point. A balance of, you know, living in the moment and planning for the future, but not planning for the distant future. (laughs) Yeah. Especially like a lot of the clients that I've worked with have been startups and like sometimes the app gets off the ground and actually launches and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, you know, we're spending all this time engineering this like amazing application and then they don't get the next funding round and it's just gone. So I think when we're in situations like that, we have to be extra careful that we're not really investing our time and our energy in, in like perfect design when we don't have a, a product yet or when we don't know what's going to become of it. But then at the same time, there are things that we can do to make our code easier to change. You know, something that I mentioned earlier was I prefer to use more like dependency injection into my React components so that my components don't necessarily know that they're using Redux or or in some cases they don't know that they're using a context provider or things like that so that if I do want to change like some of the ex- some of the like workings of my state management or my API provider or if I want to switch to GraphQL instead of REST, I don't necessarily want to have to go in and change every one of my components. So trying to have pretty good separation between things that are less likely to change and things that are more likely to change is kind of my go-to strategy right now for not preventing change, but making it a little bit less painful. Yeah, I'm finding that hooks and like understanding how to write good hooks is definitely helping with that sort of thing. Exactly what you're describing there. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really, really nice. And I can, I'm definitely on that wavelength. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of something you said earlier. You mentioned like runway a few times. I guess, you know, thinking about a runway means, you, you know, imagine I'm sitting in, a, in an airplane, we're on the runway, we're heading, we're going to take off, we have a destination in mind. And if we don't pull up, we're going to run off the end of the end w- runway, fall into the ocean and die. So at a certain <laughs> point, you've you got to be aware of like how much time and space you have yeah. and what is your ultimate destination mm-hmm. and how much cargo you need to bring with you right now. Yeah. yeah there's a balance there too, right? Because I had this conversation, I think it was on JavaScript Jabber or something. Anyway, we were talking about how people tend to you know, they'll they'll get deep into React and then they'll go try Angular for a day and then they'll come back and go, Angular sucks, <laughs> right? Or, or people will get deep into Vue and then they'll come try React. React sucks. <laughs> the reality is, is they haven't actually built like a real app in it yet, right? So they don't actually know what it's like. So, you know, when we're talking about this runway, how much runway do you actually need to know if it's the right solution? That's a question. Um, and... It does really depend on what you're trying to build, honestly. And sometimes you might 
if you're not coming at it from like, I'm completely, I don't know how to write things in this language, you might just need a couple of days to like build a prototype, run it by your teammates, see if it works, play with it. And then you might be able to be like, yep, this is the solution that we want to go with. But I am very, very familiar with that like angular sucks attitude. And, and it is sometimes really difficult to get buy-in on a solution that feels different than what you're used to. Um, so that sometimes takes a little bit more time, especially um, if people are very, very confident about what works for them. <laughs> yeah. One other thing with state management that I've run across is that I've had a number of people tell me that solutions like Redux are kind of overkill for their situation, right? They don't have that much state to keep track of or things like that. Mm -hmm. So if you're finding that Redux is more boilerplate, I guess, than what you really want for the handful of things you have to keep track of, what, what are my other options? You know, what other things should I be trying? Well, fortunately, the React team has been working on this a lot for the last couple of years and has given us some other solutions such as maybe building custom hooks that store that manage some of your states that are a little bit more composable and reusable and in my mind a little bit easier to understand because we don't have all of the like composer and reducer and all of that kind of language that is harder for new people to wrap their minds around. We also are able to, in some cases, just use set states. I know for a while, like that was kind of frowned upon, like, oh, local state, that's not, you know, that's that's not good with Redux. But there are honestly a lot of solutions where, or a lot of problems where what you really need is just a state variable. And if you need to share that state with more than one component, um, I've found that using the context API or like some sort of extracted, like I used to use render props, but now I use more hooks, like an extracted hook, something so that you can share that state in a way that really leverages some of the tools that are built into React right now. And that overall reduces your reliance on external libraries and some of that boilerplate. I will note that there is definitely some drawbacks with that, especially as your application grows, because you end up with kind of like, you know, I've heard some complaints recently about like, well, my application got bigger and I was using context and I needed to add more structure and, oh shoot, I just rebuilt Redux. So I think there is a danger in kind of ending up with something that's even harder to understand because it's less consistent across your application. Yeah, it's funny that because you do, you know, you do have certain people that are in the school of thought that, you know, Redux sucks or, you know, oh, it provides so much mm -hmm. boilerplate and overhead and, you know, there's a learning curve to it and whatever. But as soon as you get a developer join a React project, the first thing they'll say is, where are my reducers? Where are my actions? Like, yeah. it's the first thing that they ask for as well, which is like, it, it is like that, that really, really fine edge between, you know, loving the overheads that come with it and hating the overheads with it. Yeah. And I must say, like, Redux, it serves a good purpose. It is a common language that a lot of us who have been working in the field understand. And there are a lot of advantages to it, even now. Yeah, one other advantage to it is the fact that the Redux pattern is common in the other frameworks too. So if you're bringing somebody over from Angular and they've dealt with NGRX, or if you're bringing somebody over from Vue and they've done Vuex, 
then Redux or something that looks like it isn't that foreign. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to devchat.tv slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked up with experienced developers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to devchat.tv slash G2i to learn more about G2i. I deeply detested Redux for a little while, uh, partially based on the opinions of, of people who... I assumed knew what they were talking about without actually looking into it myself. And then when I actually got a real job on a real team and was actually using it, I already came in having, you know, assumptions that were based in a context that were that had nothing to do with that company. And based on opinions of people that I, I still respect, they, I still think that their opinions are correct in the correct context. But I can, I can see now kind of the unexpected indirect benefits of Redux or jQuery or, you know, whatever is, mm-hmm. you know, the popular thing that everybody knows already that I kind of had undervalued before. So partly it's just, you know, being aware of and appreciating kind of the meta benefits of something and not focusing so much on my own personal technical comfort Yeah. And I've also had the experience, like the very first time I was on a team that used Redux, you know, I had a little bit of that where I was like, "Eh, I don't really like this. And I also didn't, I wasn't super impressed by it um, because of the way that it was being used on that project. So you definitely run into the problem of like, do I really hate Redux or do I just not like the way that it was used in this particular circumstance? And in this case, it was used to completely replace all states, period, which meant that all of our forms were in Redux and all of our like, just like toggle buttons were in Redux and like every single local thing that should have been in local state was in Redux. So we just ended up with like this twisted web of like, you know, if I want to change the state of this button, I have to go like four components over here and change my Redux reducer and... Yeah, it got very convoluted. Same with styled components. I still have like weird feelings about styled components because I've just seen it used so badly, even though I know that that's not necessarily a fair, like a fair representation of the benefits that it was supposed to provide. That's an interesting point you bring up. Uh, Is there a clear delineation between what you put in kind of the local state for a component versus what you put into the global state? So, for example, um, I've been. I'm actually doing a, a Vue.js challenge to learn Vue. And I've been building this course system. And so, you know, I put all my courses in the global state management and I've pulled that in when I need it in the individual components. But some of the individual components, they just have a course that was pulled out of global state, but is managed locally because for that single component, that's all I care about. So where do you draw that line? Because I worry a little bit that I'm, I'm pushing stuff up to the global state because it's convenient to have it globally available. And in reality, I may not need to do that because it's way easier to deal with the local stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of debates around this, around exactly where to draw that line. 
something that I talked about in my talk was, you know, how do you, how do you determine the scope of your state? Like which other parts of your application it should touch? And there are some answers that I think are almost always local, like form state is almost always local because it's very rare that like the data that's actually in your form before it gets submitted is going to need to be stored anywhere else. You know, a lot of things that are like, I really only need it in this one component. Like if I click this button and the color changes, eh, I don't care about that, like globally. And again, there is a little bit of like, well, if I put it in the global state, I might be more prepared for the future where I might need to share this state. So you you kind of have to come back to that balance of like, do I want to try to anticipate the future or do I want to make a choice right now and then, you know, make it in a way that I may be able to change it later if I learn that I do need that globally. So I guess the TLDR for me is I start local. If I need it somewhere else, then I will like push it up. If I'm using context or something where I'm able to like just put it around those two components in this part of the tree, then that's better. But if I'm using Redux or something that's completely global, then I might put it in Redux. If I later discover that I need to access that somewhere else. Yeah, one of the things that that started to freak me out about when you use shared state or you know you add too much flexibility too soon how do you know when you can deprecate something or remove it like i I was on a project that had all this stuff in the shared state but like you know how much of this stuff are we using there were two things that looked like that's almost the exact same thing are is anything actually using that and how do i know how do i have absolute certainty what state I can remove, what code I can remove, and what is coupled to what? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a question that I've had recently. Like, if anybody knows of tools like this, let me know. But I would be like all in on a tool that kind of mapped my components, mapped my state, and showed me like which components are using which pieces of state, which components are getting imported in, some, in another place. Um, just because that's a really common problem where I will stumble upon something and I'm like, oh, wait, we just duplicated this rather than using the one that we already had. Or we got rid of the connection to this component, but it's still here. So I would also be really curious about if anybody has ideas or solutions for the, the dead code problem or duplicated code. It kind of reminds me of what happened with CSS. Um, I don't know, like a decade ago, we were doing like this this mobile framework, and it turns out like the I was on looking into the performance. It turned out the the number one performance issue was the CSS. Like everything else was brilliantly fast and optimized out the wazoo, but just nobody had looked at the CSS because they just assumed ah CSS. We had three megabytes of CSS on a mobile app on a mobile app framework. Wow. And after all the research and development in the world, we discovered that the, the number one best performance technique was to just inline all the CSS. This was way before Re- React or anything. And now, you know, CSS and JS is like quasi-normal, still a debate, but still. But I, it feels like the same, you know, global versus local problem it feels like we're having a resurgence of the, you know, the CSS and JavaScript. What if we put state in our local components instead? <laughs> yeah, 
And I mean, in regards to that CSS problem, like, I think that being able to write good CSS is like one of the most underrated skills in front end development. You know, I think there's a lot of people who think that they can write CSS, but I think a lot of us struggle to write it in a way that, that actually re that actually uses the cascading part of the CSS so that you don't have to copy and paste the same line for every single component, which Gets back to some of my issues with styled components, because I think that if we wrote better CSS, we might not need it. But anyway, we're having kind of the same debate where we're like, do we want things that are global? Because the advantage of something that's global is like, I don't have to write it individually everywhere. But then when I want to override that, when I want it to be different, that's much more complicated. So I think that's just like kind of our eternal problem that we keep going back and forth on do we want stuff that is shared or do we want things that are individual harder to change but easier to customize it goes back to the same kind of dilemma of of runway and and where are we optimizing are we trying to make it easy for ourselves now ah we'll just make it local whatever it's easy or are we really thinking about the future and thinking well let's see if we did this and let's think through toward the end of our runway what are we going to be doing later is this a maintainable solution for the long term? Is this a pit of success? That's that's another thing that that came up. Is like a lot of these things, like they seem like such brilliant tools. Like I I used to overly build overly generic things back in the Moo Tools days, and I was so proud of of how flexible my stuff was, which is a huge red flag. <laughs> And later on, when I was using it, I, it was just such a nightmare to debug it if anything went wrong at all. It was a, a pit of success for starting out, but it was a, a not a pit of success for long-term maintenance. And I think that's one of the things that React has done particularly well because it was the, the people who were building it came with all this wisdom from a company w- filled with people that had already done it wrong in 20 different ways. And like, here, don't do that, do this instead. And then it'll be more of a pit of success, easier to bring people into the team, easier to avoid all the foot guns, et cetera. Yeah, and I think one of React's biggest strengths and also biggest weaknesses is the fact that it is, you know, well-designed for that reason. It's easy to start out with, but it's very unopinionated. There's thousands of different ways that you can structure your application, use, you know, use different state management, use different libraries. Sometimes one React application will just be look completely different from another. And I think that that is one of its strengths in terms of we get so much freedom of choice in how we use this. And the framework itself doesn't really tell us what to do. But I think we all are aware that sometimes that choice also brings with it a lot of responsibility to like to make good choices. And that's hard. That's why our whole job is hard because... There is nobody telling us like this is the one thing that you need to do. This is the perfect way to like convince your stakeholders to give you a month to rewrite this part of your application. This is the perfect way to manage your state. Like that really doesn't exist and I think our job as engineers is like figuring out which imperfect solution we're going to is slightly better or which imperfect solution is going to work better for our team. Absolutely. And I think that's why some teams, like as much as I love React and everything, depending on the team, depending on the goal, depending on the product, like maybe you should be using Angular. 
you know, maybe you should be using Dojo. You know, they, they do all their stuff in TypeScript now. That's cool. Like, if you don't want to have to own the long-term responsibility of making all the right choices, React isn't for you. You might want a framework and not a library. And I think that's, that's really kind of my personal definition of framework versus library of, you know, who makes the choices and who is responsible for the long-term ownership of the f- making those choices the right way. And what's the scope yeah, absolutely. I've also recommended Angular to certain clients for that reason, because that's really what they want. Something that tells them exactly what to build. Wow. Did I just hear people recommending Angular on a React podcast? <laughs> you don't want unhappy React users complaining about React, right? <laughs> that's true. You know, and, and this is another thing that I, I push on people a bit is, you know, you have to be responsible for your decisions. So you can't blame React for your problems if you chose React if there was a better solution somewhere else, you know, because you ultimately made the decision. And even if it is React's fault, I mean, you're the one that has to fix it. So, you know, one way or the other, right? It is your responsibility. That is a tricky one, though. What if a team ch- goes with something like React or Vue or, or whatever, and then after however long discovers, oh, maybe we should be using <laughs> Angular? I mean, I've never seen it go that way. I usually see it go the other way where a team is working on Angular and is like, eh, we should be using React because it's cooler or, you know, it gives us more (laughs) flexibility or whatever. I think in that case, if you are rewriting just for personal preference, like, good luck with that. I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) recommend spending your company's money that way. But, you know, I think that if you were in that boat, there are probably other ways that you could, like, have some some set of rules for how we're going to write this application, you know, whether that's much more opinionated lint config or TypeScript or like a detailed style guide. Like, I think there are ways to give yourself a little bit more guidance without going full Angular if you already have a React project. That's a really good point. And like, and we kind of live in a in a golden age of tools managing our stupid decisions for us, like prettier. You just turn on pretty, you never never have to argue about code syntax ever again. It's like solved. Yep, until prettier updates one of their rules and then you end up with like a 30 line, <laughs> you end up with like a 300 line diff randomly. But it's, Or people I, figure I out it. that you can customize the rules. <laughs> I don't care. And then they randomly do it. Yep. <laughs> okay, then I care. Yeah, it can force tabs tabs over spaces or whatever. Don't Get make out. me cry, Dave. <laughs> oh, the hours I've spent <laughs> arguing about that. So stupid. Yep. Something that I've done for teams before is, especially if we have a, a code base that's kind of a mess, like sit down and decide together, like what are the conventions that we're going to use moving forward? How are we going to manage local state? How are we going to manage global state? How are we going to manage like subcomponents are we going to use classes or functions like just make some of those decisions together and then that way when you're reviewing code even if you don't have a framework that enforces some of those things you have a way of like being able to check off like when as you're doing code reviews as a team you have some shared standard for what this yeah. code is going to look like that kind of reduces some of that decision fatigue honestly 
And speaking of which, that kind of reminds me of the the other talk that you're working on. The um, wh- what was it again? Something about refactoring. How are your code? Finding joy in refactoring. When would you recommend refactoring something? Is it when you've discovered that a decision was made poorly, or maybe there's an update to the to the library you're using, or like what what are the common use cases for refactoring? So my most common use case is like on that day when I get a ticket and it's usually a small thing. It's usually like go into this form, add one more thing to that drop down menu. And I'm like, cool, that sounds easy. I go into that form. I discover that there are like 17 nested conditionals inside that form components that are like, so where they're like trying to use the same component for like eight different use cases and then in order to change that one value in that one field, I have to like navigate through this whole twisted web of like different conditions and different rendering functions. And yeah, it's, it's a, it, like my most common use case for refactoring is when I am trying to make a change and, I, and it's really hard to make simple changes. So that's the case where I would say, look, I can refactor this now. Or I can like have to spend it out an extra hour every single time I touch this component just to figure out what's going on. So that's my most common use case, the component that's really hard to change. That's very interesting because that reminds me of like the death by a thousand cuts performance issue, but applied to developer performance and not like runtime performance especially if you have like new people on the team they just don't they don't know to expect. Well, they, you know, maybe it takes three days to make a tiny change. I don't know. And they don't complain. And so, you know, we tolerate messes and make them worse. Yep. If there's already like seven conditionals, why does it matter if I add one more? You know, that kind of like, it's already bad. So why should I make it better? I think I often end up being the one who takes the responsibility to be like, I will make it better. Because if this is just going to persist forever, otherwise, I think it's time to rethink these decisions. Well, it's interesting too, because I've been talking a lot to Uncle Bob Martin and a bunch of the folks that have done videos on cleancoders.com. And, you know, when they talk about clean code, that's what it is, is it's how easy is it to change? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, how easy is it to confidently change? And that's what you're talking about, right? Well, what if I'm dealing with a condition because there are 8, 10, 15 conditionals in here, and I'm, I'm dealing with a condition that I don't foresee? Yeah. How do I test that? How do I QA 17 conditionals worth of... Right. Instead of just having a component that's easy to test. Yeah. Especially if I'm coming in as the person who didn't build that component originally, I might not have all the context that they might have had from the the design docs, from the stakeholders. Like, I might not have all the context for exactly what that component should be doing and what use cases it, it should fit. So, you know, if I am coming in later and adding test coverage after the facts, just so that I have some assurance that I can refactor this thing, there's actually no way for me to know that I'm not changing any expected functionality. So for me, that's why writing components that are easy to test and also adding some test coverage up front is really important because that next person isn't necessarily going to have all the same shared knowledge that I did, especially if it's like, you know, one, two, three years down the road. 
Oh, heavens. Even if I was the one that wrote it, if it's been two weeks and I haven't touched it, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. That's yep, very true. Absolutely. And that brings up like the assumptions thing again. There are so many basic assumptions that we make that we don't even realize we're making. It's like, you know, the, the goldfish doesn't see the water. It's just reality. I don't know. And when you force yourself to document something or explain it to somebody else or write tests for it, it kind of forces you to be intentional about how you are managing complexity and getting an, another outsider's perspective. Even if you just force yourself to explain it to a hypothetical external person, kind of uses a different part of your brain that forces you to realize things that you wouldn't have considered if you were just doing it for your own temporary comfort. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things that I learned pretty early on from like the kind of clean code school of thought is if something is hard to test, that probably means you should rethink your design. And the same thing absolutely applies with like React components. If you're putting your API requests directly in the components and like you're, you're having to go through all these steps to like mock out your API and mock out that weirdly shaped response that you're getting and like... You know, if you're having to do a lot of work to test this component, then that probably means that you should use dependency injection, decouple it from, you know, the API, do something that makes that easier. Yeah, I I definitely agree there. I was just going to add in there that once you start taking these components and like sort of doing these things in a project as well, and you start establishing these patterns inside the, you know, your code base, I find that cleaner code bases tend to attract cleaner code being added rather than if, if just one pocket of the code base is a bit of a mess and one, one corner of it is, you know, quite, quite elegant. It sort of then turns into a bit of a free for all as to, to what approach people take when they're writing these components. Yep, that's one of the topics of my KonMari talk. Like, if the rest of your house is messy, it's really hard to think about like, oh, I'm going to put this one thing in the right place. You know, is writing one clean component actually, is that even possible? If you don't have like an existing example of how to do that or an existing pattern for where it should go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People just start copy pasting things from other components that sort of look like, you know, that's roughly how we do this. So we'll just copy paste that and suddenly you're propagating some pretty ugly stuff. And if, you know, I don't know what your code review process is like, but if stuff starts to fall through the cracks. It all kind of goes together as like being intentional about managing the culture, managing, you know, what are what are the standards here? What do we tolerate? What is acceptable? What is unacceptable? What are the standards? What are the values? Who cares? Why do we care? And a lot of times people just, you know, don't think about it and actively try not to think about it because it's like, eh, we're, we're tech people. We, you know, but, you know, it's all related to onboarding. You know, how do you learn how things are done in the code? Well, you look at the code. You just do what other people are doing in the code. Well, this is what we do, so... I guess broken windows are tolerated in this neighborhood, so I'll throw trash on the street. Yeah, and I think in some ways this kind of MVP mindset, this iterative, like, I'm just going to do something, anything that works right now, and then we can fix it later. I think that sometimes that mindset can kind of hurt us, especially when we're talking about our team culture, when we're talking about, like, the beginning of our code base. If we're just trying to be like, eh, I'm just going to do something, 
and then we can iterate on it later. I actually think that the beginning of your of your project, the beginning of your team, setting up those norms, setting up the structure of your code base, like the beginning is actually really important because if you establish bad patterns early, they're much more likely to continue as your project progresses. And then you get a couple of years down the road and you're like, why are we still doing this? Well, because we didn't, we didn't set the expectation up front. Yes. And I've seen that go bad too. It was like earlier in my career, I was so proud of myself. I could just slap something together super fast. It would work. It proved the concept. And what I was accidentally doing is just setting the expectation of normality. Like this is what's normal. And then when I started, you know, learning to have higher standards and really pushing for them, it was really, really hard. It was an uphill battle of just like, okay, well, why are you suddenly taking twice as long to do this? Like, well, you know, and how do I admit, well, it's because I sucked before and now I'm awesome. Like, I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. And trying to explain that to non-technical stakeholders, especially can be really difficult when you're like, well, now I need to actually build it right. And they're like, well, it looked fine before. It's always a fun conversation to have too, because all they see is the dollar signs. Or like the pretty, the pretty interface. You know, I've seen lots of lots of applications that look really, really pretty on the outside, but like if you actually dig into the code, it's it's a mess. Yeah, that's one of the th- reasons why I changed my career. I I started in print design and then web design and then web development, and I I was just doing like random websites for random places, but I ended up you know over engineering them for what they were. I was pouring way too much time and effort into it and, and doing unit tests for just like a regular website. Just like, I, and I couldn't compete with all these, you know, people who could just slap together a site with jQuery because honestly, you know, that's all the website needed. It was just like, it was a regular website. You just slap some jQuery on there. It's fine. When they, they're, they're never going to maintain this site. They'll maybe change the content. They'll throw it away and build a new one when they need to. But when I went into doing applications, it's like, finally, people who appreciate tests and people who appreciate this. But I was still in kind of the mindset of, I got to crap this thing out within 24 hours of just like, it was a long road to, to force myself to realize, you know, how to set standards from the beginning and really be on board with all the things that I thought I was on board with, <laughs> but I wasn't actually doing. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, even as engineers, we have to be aware of the context. We have to be aware of like, is this a prototype? Is this something that is that is going to get reused? Is this like the landing page? There's always lots of situations where maybe we don't need test coverage just because it makes us feel good. That's interesting though. So how do you like isolate those separate constraints so that the kind of the one mentality doesn't leak over into the into a different context where you do need tests or vice versa? Yeah. um, I mean, I guess it's just important to think about the risks. You know, if this is like somebody's blog, somebody's personal, personal website, you know, if one feature doesn't work, uh, like, you know, you'll fix that eventually. (laughs) But if it is like a bank and if this feature doesn't work, somebody is losing like $10 million. Like that is obviously a much bigger risk. So with a bigger risk of failure, then, you know, your precautions, your need for like really careful thoughts and good design and test coverage, like that's going to go up. 
if you're designing something that you can never update, like if you're sending something to the moon, maybe don't write it in jQuery. <laughs> if you're building a blog, maybe don't write it in C. <laughs> Unless you really want a challenge, but no, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> C is for challenge. <laughs> <laughs> or the Challenger space shuttle. Wait, isn't that the one that blew up? Oh, man. I saw that. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Should we do picks? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. So let's start with the new guy on the panel, Dave Cooper. What are your picks for the week? I sort of, I've picked a pick while we were talking here. If anyone has not really dealt with styled components at all, I would implore you to go and check them out. It has, it's sort of like, it seems to be a very love it or hate it sort of thing at the moment. And I find myself on a weekly basis bouncing to and from loving and hating it. So that's definitely a pick. And I think on the last podcast I was uh, on, I think I picked an Angular thing for uh, oh, a static site generator. That's right. So I was talking about Scully. I've been messing around with Gatsby in the last week as well. That's another pick. Definitely give, give that a whirl if you haven't and you, you're sort of looking to do some, some static content generation. All right. Awesome. Charles, what do you got? Man, it has been a really long week. I think, honestly, for picks this week, I'm just going to pick... So I have a really nice set of headphones. I think I actually got them as a bonus for using a service. They mailed them to me, but they're the Bose uh, SoundLink headphones. I don't think these ones are actually noise-canceling, but they're really lightweight. They're easy to travel with, and I really like them. And so, uh, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can get them, but they just connect to my phone via Bluetooth and they're really nice. So I'm going to pick those. Very nice. My pick of the week is Rome Research. I resisted learning it for a long time. I have a pal who's, who's a, a big fan because, you know, yet another stupid tool to learn, great. I'm, you know, let me just live my life. But no, I, I gave it a try and it, it fits the way that my brain works. And like a, a feature of it that I that I realized recently. So it's it's a tool for networked thoughts. So you just like, you know, you type in notes and you can link kind of hyperlink things together and it makes it really, really easy to organize the concepts while gathering in the data. And that's kind of how my 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 brain works is I want to import all the raw data and then sit and carefully organize the concepts later and hone down to the, you know, the core principles and stuff. A feature that I realized by using this is it's, it's giving me the superpower to remember things that I never learned. So, for example, I, I joined a, a new team recently, and then I imported a bunch of the old like sprint review notes into my system. I linked it up some of the, the contexts, and now I can, within a couple of clicks, get context about the history of a feature of a product that I had never heard of the previous week. And now, like, I know more than everybody else on the team about this thing that I've never even used before, just because I have easy access to all this networked information. Anyway, I could rant about this for a while. (laughs) Check it out. It's in beta. It's neat. They wrote it in Clojure. I'm not exactly sure what that is. I need to go research that. Great. More stuff to learn. 
And now finally, Becca, you get the last word. All right. Um, do you want to hear some of my picks? Absolutely, I do. So my technical pick right now is a library called Victory. I have been um, working on a lot of charts recently, and Victory is an awesome charting library that is being maintained by my company, Formidable, but it's open source. It's very um, extensible. It's fairly easy to get started with. Like If you need to write a chart in React, like that's my number one pick for being able to create really cool looking ch- charts and graphs. And my second pick is possibly a bit more controversial, but I've been reading a book this week called Brotopia, which talks about the um, origins of some of the gender disparity in Silicon Valley that we're still seeing today. Um, And it's just very enlightening for like where some of these diversity problems and some of these team problems have originated from. That sounds very interesting. I always love getting the historical context about kind of the the things that are just that's just the way things are, and very few people question why are things that way. And yeah, it's, been, it's always surprising it's, that you can actually find out. <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting. Like, you know, they did a profile on this company in the 90s that really, like, started this, like, work hard, play hard, like, work 18 hours a day, then drink all weekend, like, that kind of culture that seems to be kind of pervasive, especially in a lot of startups. But it's really interesting to be like, oh, wait, that actually like there was a specific person who started that. And then oh, all the people cool. kind of, you know, propagated to different companies and brought that kind of that culture with them. Interesting. I'll yeah. check that out. Thank you. The only thing that's better than reading books like that is if there's more than one view on it. Like, so if there were two or three people involved. And so it's kind of like, oh, well, we were trying to make this happen over here. And we were trying to make this happen over here and it kind of came together in this way, right? Mm-hmm. And that's always interesting to see too. Yeah, it's like learning about all the, all the weird stuff that happened at Apple, like during the invention of the iPhone, like there was a guy that he worked so hard, he ruined his life and I think he ended up uh, taking his own life. And it kind of goes back to that conversation about culture and being intentional about kind of the, the long-term effects of making choices about your culture and, and your standards and who you want to be as people, et cetera. And, and I love that finally it's okay and kind of like good to start actually talking about these things and, and have open dialogue about what's going on and why. Yeah, I guess that's a really good example too of what I'm kind of aiming at is just maybe some people were trying to create this culture and then they got some pushback and we ended up here, <laughs> right? Because Yeah, I got to like, check out the book. Yeah, I th- I, I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah, it's very good. I recommend it. Cool. Okay, well, I think that's a, about wraps it up for React Roundup for this week. And we'll uh, see you on React to Flux, I guess. I don't know. See you guys. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>